0: Welcome to the AWP Podcast Series. This event originally occurred at the AWP Conference in Chicago on March 2nd, 2012. The recording features Don Share, Carol Ann Duffy, and Philip Levine. Now you will hear Don Share of the Poetry Foundation provide an introduction. Good evening and
1: welcome. Poetry is about juxtaposition in its very best sense, and I suppose many people may have wondered what, besides this occasion, brings together the Poets Laureate, uh, Poets Laureates from two very different traditions that are kindred um, but different. We'll first hear part of the answer to this in the reading from Caroline Duffy, the Poet Laureate of Great Britain. The legendary newspaper The Guardian says Carol Ann Duffy is a superstar. They said 400 years of male domination came to an end with the election of Carol Ann Duffy as the first woman poet laureate of Great Britain. She's also... We still... That means that we still have 200 years more to go, I guess. No. Uh, You know, she's also the first Scot to hold the position. And she's the first British poet orate to be chosen in the 21st century. I think poets in the UK are a little more familiar with her work than we are over here, but as we discover it in the United States, we speak of Caroline Duffy's work with excitement and admiration. Chicago's a tough town. American literary culture is tough, and one of our toughest critics from Poetry Magazine, Dylan Tracy, wrote, she imagines her poems with systematic vigor as if they were bathyscapes she were going to descend in, and their soundness depended on the quality of her invention. Caroline Duffy is also a playwright, and her writing for younger readers is memorable, warm, and witty. Her recent book, The Bees, which is her first new collection of poems as the poet laureate, was much anticipated and all the critics have found that the bees finds her using her full poetic range. Drinking songs, love poems, poems to the weather, which we have loads of here tonight, poems of political anger, elegies, and our own critic, Chicago critic, Daniel Chapman, another tough cookie has praised this book in the strongest possible terms. Poets bring to us, of course, things we never can forget. And in Carolyn Duffy's poems, who can forget such characters as Mrs. Lazarus, a poem which begins, I had grieved. I had wept for a night and a day over my loss ripped the cloth I was married in from my breasts, howled, shrieked, clawed at the burial stones until my hands bled, wretched his name over and over again, dead, dead. Poets remember what has come before in our greatest traditions. they They remember people who aren't with us anymore. And of course, the greatest gift of all is that poets bring life to us all. Please welcome Carolyn Duffy, Poet Laureate of Great Britain.
2: Thank you very much. Um, It's so lovely um, to be invited here. Um, I've had a wonderful time today um, in your city. I love it. Um, already. The Art Gallery, um, the Hancock Tower, a couple of the things I've done today. They do lousy margaritas there. (laughs) Do do them better in Manchester. And um, it's a great honor to read with your laureate, Philip Levine, whom um, I haven't met before, but I've loved his poetry for probably 30 years now. It's very interesting um, to hear someone introduce you, first this, first that, Um, I suppose the thing I would most want to be said about me would be the first gay poet laureate. I thought I'd start with some old poems and then read some new poems. i read for about 35 minutes. Um, And I thought I'd read some poems from a a book called The World's Wife, which I wrote about 10 years ago now. (laughs) You're so generous, clapping. Um, Thank you, all six of you. Um, And um, what, what I wanted to do in that book was to take all the stories or characters Um, that I'd known from childhood and celebrate them, perhaps find um, a fresh way of retelling which I think from Shakespeare onwards, writers show us that that is what we must do to make the old new. Um, I also wanted to subvert and perhaps to find a hidden female voice in what was very familiar. And the very first story that I remembered, that I loved from childhood, was from Ovid, um, great book, Metamorphoses, which I think was Shakespeare's favorite book, even. And um, it was the story of Midas. And you remember that he was granted a wish by the gods and asked that everything that he touched would turn to gold. And as a child, I was enthralled and enchanted by this this story but as an adult um, writer I felt queasy at imagining being the wife of Midas immediately after the wish had been granted. So here is Mrs. Midas. It was late September. I'd just poured a glass of wine begun to unwind while the vegetables cooked. The kitchen filled with the smell of itself, relaxed, its steamy breath gently blanching the windows. So I opened one, then, with my fingers, wiped the other's glass like a brow. He was standing under the pear tree, snapping a twig. Now, the garden was long and the visibility poor, the way the dark of the ground seems to drink the light of the sky. But that twig in his hand was gold. And then he plucked a pear from a branch we grew fundant Tom, and it sat in his palm like a light bulb. On. I thought to myself, is he putting fairy lights in that tree? He came into the house. The doorknobs gleamed. He drew the blinds. You know the mind. I thought of the field of the cloth of gold and of Miss McCrudy. He sat in that chair like a king on a burnished throne. The look on his face was strange, wild, vain. I said, what in the name of God is going on? He started to laugh. I served up the meal. For starters, corn on the cob. Within seconds he was spitting out the teeth of the rich. He told with his spoon, then mine, then with the knives, the forks. He asked where was the wine. I poured with a shaking hand a fragrant bone-dry white from Italy, then watched as he picked up the glass, goblet, golden chalice, drank. It was then that I started to scream. He sank to his knees After we'd both calmed down I finished the wine on my own Hearing him out I made him sit on the other side of the room Keep his hands to himself I locked the cat in the cellar I moved the phone The toilet I didn't mind I couldn't believe my ears, how he'd had a wish. Look, we all have wishes, granted. But who has wishes granted? Him. Do you know about gold? It feeds no one. Aurum, soft, untarnishable, slakes no thirst. He tried to light a cigarette. I gazed, entranced. As the blue flame played on its luteous stem At least, I said, you'll be able to give up smoking for good (laughs) Separate beds In fact, I put a chair against my door near petrified He was below turning the spare room into the tomb of Tutankhamun. You see... We were passionate then, in those halcyon days, unwrapping each other rapidly like presents, fast food. But now I feared his honeyed embrace, the kiss that would turn my lips to a work of art. And who, when it comes to the crunch, can live with a heart of gold that night? I dreamt I bore his child, its perfect oar limbs, its little tongue like a precious latch, its amber eyes holding their pupils like flies, my dream milk burned in my breasts, I woke to the streaming sun. So he had to move out, We'd a caravan in the wild in the glade of its own. I drove him up under cover of dark, he sat in the back. And then I came home, the woman who married the fool who wished for gold. At first, I visited, odd times, parking the car a good way off, then walking. You knew you were getting close, golden trout on the grass. One day, a hare hung from a latch, a beautiful lemon mistake, and then his footprints glistening next to the river's path. He was thin, delirious, hearing, he said, the music of Pan from the woods listen. That was the last straw. What gets me now... It's not the idiocy or greed, but lack of thought for me, pure selfishness. I sold the contents of the house and came down here. I think of him in certain lights, dawn, late afternoon, and once a bowl of apples stopped me dead. I miss most, even now, his hands, his warm hands on my skin, his touch. Thank you you very much. Another character from Ovid is Tirusius, perhaps. Not as well um, remembered every day as as Midas. And in fact, I, finding these old stories from childhood, first encountered Tiresias in Eliot's great poem, The Wasteland. And I think the the line that Eliot um, references there is, Tiresias, old man with wrinkled female dugs, having... um, Scottish and Irish parents as a schoolgirl I thought this meant that Tiresias had two pets um, but I had a very good English teacher and she said no go back to Ovid and read the original story and there I, I found that Tiresias was a, um, a middle-aged man I suppose um, he'd gone out a walk one day in the woods and on his walk he'd encountered two snakes attempting to mate i've no idea how how snakes <laughs> might do this um, <laughs> anyway well, however they do it tiresias didn't like the look of it um <laughs> And um, he prevented it by beating these two snakes to a pulp with his walking stick, as you would. (laughs) And um, Of course, Greek gods were always looking down, weren't they, at, at, at humans. They saw Tiresias slaughter these snakes and they punished him then and there by turning him into a woman for seven years. bit like being made poet laureate actually Um, and then at the end of seven years he was allowed to become a man again so I I was fascinated at the sexual dilemma that this seemed to throw up um, and wondered also what the wife of Tiresias might think when he returned from the walk (laughs) thus punished and um, was very influenced obliquely in, in the writing of this poem by Shakespeare's son as 116. Let me not to the marriage of true minds admit impediment. Love is not love which alters, where its alteration finds. So I wrote the poem. Interestingly, I read the poem in manuscript form in England before I'd published it Um, and after the reading I was accosted by an academic (laughs) that won't be happening this evening will it and um, she said to me I did know didn't I that Tiresias had done many other things in his story and of it and my poem didn't barely cover any of this did it So when the time came to publish my poem, if if you see it in the collection *The World's Wife, you'll note that it's published as from, in italics, Mrs. Tiresias. And this was to give the idea that it's but an extract from a longer, more knowledgeable work. (laughs) Which it isn't. Rather interestingly, I get emails from other academics saying, where can they put their hands on the complete text of this poem? <laughs> <laughs> ha So it's a way um, for the writers here of writing more than you do from Mrs. Tiresias. All I know is this. He went out for his work a man and came home female. Out the back gate with his stick, the dog, wearing his gardening kecks, an open neck shirt, and a jacket in Harry's tweed I'd patched at the elbows myself. Whistling. He liked to hear the first cuckoo of spring, then write to the Times. I'd usually heard it days before him, but I never let on. I'd heard one that morning While he was asleep Just as I heard at about 6pm A faint sneer of thunder up in the woods And felt a sudden heat at the back of my knees He was late getting back I was brushing my hair at the mirror And running a bath When a face swam into view Next to my own The eyes were the same But in the shocking V of the shirt were breasts. When he uttered my name in his woman's voice, I passed out. (laughs) Life has to go on. I put it about that he was a twin and this was his sister come down to live while he himself was working abroad. And at first I tried to be kind, blow drying his hair till he learnt to do it himself, (laughs) lending him clothes till he started to shop for his own, sisterly holding his soft new shape in my arms all night. Then he started his period. one week in bed (laughs) two doctors in (laughs) three painkillers four times a day and later a letter to the powers that be demanding full paid menstrual leave 12 weeks per year I see him still, his selfish, pale face peering at the moon through the bathroom window. The curse, he said, the curse. (laughs) Don't kiss me in public, he snapped the next day. (laughs) I don't want folk getting the wrong idea. It got worse. After the split, I would glimpse him out and about, entering glitzy restaurants on the arms of powerful men, though I knew for sure there'd be nothing of that going on if he had his way, or on TV, telling the women out there how, as a woman himself, he knew how we felt, his flirt smile. The one thing he never got right was the voice A cling peach slithering out from its tin I gritted my teeth And this is my lover, I said The one time we met at a glittering ball Under the lights, among tinkling glass And watched the way he stared at her violet eyes at the blaze of her skin, at the slow caress of her hand on the back of my neck, and saw him picture her bite, her bite at the fruit of my lips, and hear my red, wet cry in the night as she shook his hand, saying, How do you do? And I noticed then his hand, her hand, the clash of their sparkling rings and their painted nails. Thank you, very much. Uh, thank you, and just one more from the world's wife before I read some new poems. Probably my favourite of. Of the old stories, is the story of Faust. You remember, Faust sold his soul um, to Mephistopheles, to the devil, um, and in exchange he received, I think, 25 years of unimaginable power and wealth, the ability to time travel, to do magic, to have anything. A bit like the president before Obama um, name I forgot but at the end of this time he must pay uh, with his soul so here is mrs. Faust um, not a very pleasant woman herself but, um, Very selfish, very materialistic, a a consumer, I suppose. And she met Faust when they were at university together. (laughs) Wake Forest. (laughs) And after an on off up down relationship, she married him. So here's Mrs. Faust's account um, of that pact. First things first, I married fast We met a student, shacked up, split up, made up, hitched up, got a mortgage on a house, flourished academically, BA, MA, PhD, no kids, two towered bathrobes, hers, his. We worked, we saved, we moved again Fast cars, a boat with sails A second home in Wales The latest toys, computers, mobile phones We prospered, moved again Fast face, clever, greedy, slightly mad I was as bad I grew to love the lifestyle, not the life He grew to love the kudos, not the wife he went to whores. I felt not jealousy, but chronic irritation. I went to yoga, tai chi, feng shui, therapy, colonic irrigation. And Faust would boast at dinner parties of the cost of doing deals out east, then take his lust to sew her in a cab to say the least, to lay the ghost, get lost, meet panthers. Feast. He wanted more. I came home late one winter's evening, hadn't eaten. Faust was upstairs in his study in a meeting. I smelt cigar smoke, hellish, oddly sexy, not allowed. I heard Faust and the other laugh aloud. Next thing, the world, as Faust said, spread its legs. First, politics safe seat mp right hon kg then banks offshore abroad and business vice chairman chairman owner lord enough encore fast was cardinal pope knew more than god flew faster than the speed of sound around the globe lunched walked on the moon golfed Hold in one, lit a fat Havana on the sun. Then back to hunch, invested in smart bombs, in harms. Faust dealt in arms, Faust got in deep, got out, bought farms, cloned sheep. Faust surfed the internet for like minded Bo Peep. As for me, I went my own sweet way Saw Rome in a day Spun gold from hay Had a facelift Had my breasts enlarged My buttocks tightened Went to China, Thailand, Africa Returned, enlightened Turned 40 Celibate teetotal, Vegan Buddhist 41 Went blonde Went redhead, went brunette, went native, went ape, went berserk, went bananas, went on the run alone, went home. Fast was in. A word, he said. I spent the night being pleasured by a virtual Helen of Troy. Faced at lunch to a thousand ships, I kissed its lips. Thing is, I've made a pact with Mephistopheles, the devil's boy. He's on his way to take away what's owed, reap what I sowed. For all these years of gagging for it, going for it, rolling in it, I've sold my soul. At this... I heard a serpent hiss, tasted evil, knew its smell. A scaly devil hand poked up right through the terracotta Tuscan tiles at Faust's bare feet and dragged him, oddly smirking, there and then straight down to hell. Oh well. <laughs> Faust will left everything, the yacht, the several homes, the Learjet, the helipad, the loot, etc, etc, the lot to me, C'est la vie. When I got ill, it hurt like hell. I bought a kidney with my credit card, then I got well. I keep Faust's secret, still, the clever, cunning, callous, bastard didn't have a soul to sell. Thank you very much. I'll just read some from my my new book, The Bees, now. And um, I called the collection The Bees because the the bee, the honeybee, has um, an image. Was appearing um, without my being aware of it in, in several of the poems. And looking through them, I wondered why that might be. And of course, we all share that general, I suppose, buzz of anxiety about the environment. And the bee, in particular, is endangered, um, particularly through colony collapse disorder. Um, most drastically in China where people are having to pollinate their orchards by hand because the bees have begun to vanish and I know in in this country that it, it is something that needs addressing there's a wonderful long poem by one of our earliest poets Virgil in his Georgics where he celebrates the um, I suppose the civilization of the beehive and, and advises how best As he knew then to look after them It's just a little homage um, Version of, of that Virgil's bees A kind of prayer I suppose Bless air's gift of sweetness Honey from the bees Inspired by clover, marigold, eucalyptus, thyme, the hundred perfumes of the wind. Bless the bee-keeper who chooses for her hives a sight near water, violet beds, no you, no echo. Let the light lilt, leak, green or gold, Pigment for queens And joy be inexplicable But there In harmony of willow herb And stream Of summer heat And breeze Each bee's body At its brilliant flower Lover stunned Strumming on fragrance Smitten For this Let gardens grow where bee lines end, sighing in roses, saffron blooms, budlier. Where bees pray on their knees, sing, praise in pear trees, plum trees. Bees are the batteries of orchards, gardens. Guard them. Parliament. Then, in the writer's wood Every bird with a name in the world Crowded the leafless trees Took its turn to whistle or croak An owl grieved in an oak A magpie mocked A rook cursed from a sycamore The cormorant spoke Stinking seas below ill winds Nothing swims A vast plastic soup Thousand miles wide as long Of petroleum crap A bird of paradise wept in a willow The jewel of a hummingbird shrilled on the air A stork shored itself like a widow The gull said Where coral was red Now white Dead under stunned waters The language of fish Cut out at the root Mute oceans Oil like a gag On the gulf of Mexico A woodpecker heckled A vulture picked at its own breast Thrice from the cockerel as ever The mackerel squawk Nouns I know? Rain, forest, fire, ash, chainsaw, cattle, cocaine, cash, squatters, ranchers, loggers, looters, barons, shooters. A hawk swore. A nightingale opened its throat in a garbled quote, a worm turned in the blackbird's beak, this from the crane. What I saw? Slow thaw in permafrost, broken terrain of mud and lakes, peat broth, seepage, melt, methane breath, A bat hung like a suicide, only a rasp of wings from the raven. A heron was stone, a robin, blood in the written wood. So snow and darkness slowly fell. The eagle, history in silhouette with the golden plover and the albatross. Telling of Arctic ice as the cold, hard moon carved from the earth. Cold. It felt so cold, the snowball which wept in my hand. And when I rolled it along in the snow, it grew till I could sit on it, looking back at the house, where it was cold when I woke in my room, the windows blind with ice, my breath undressing itself on the air. Cold, too, embracing the torso of snow, which I lifted up in my arms to build a snowman my toes burning cold in my winter boots my mother's voice calling me in from the cold and her hands were cold from peeling and pooling potatoes into a bowl stooping to cup her daughter's face a kiss For both cold cheeks, my cold nose. But nothing so cold as the February night. I opened the door in the chapel of rest, Where my mother lay, neither young nor old, Where my lips, returning her kiss to her brow, Knew the meaning of Cold. Thank you very much. I'm going to read two more poems before Philip. And uh, my penultimate poem returns to the um, plight of the bee, which I mentioned, um, and the disappearance of of bees already in significant pockets of China so farmers are actually paying people to um, as I said pollinate the orchards by hand the human bee I became a human bee at 12 when they gave me my small wand my flask of pollen and I walked with the other bees out to the orchards. I worked first in apples, climbed the ladder into the childless arms of a tree and busied myself, dipping and tickling, duping and tackling, tracing the petals' guidelines down to the stigma. Human, humming, I knew my lessons by heart, The ovary would become the fruit The ovule, the seed Fertilized by my golden touch My Midas dust I moved to lemons Head and shoulders lost in blossom Dawn till dusk My delicate blessing All must be docile Kind unfought for one fruit Pomegranate, lychee, nectarine, peach, the rhymeless orange. And if an opening bud was out of range, I'd jump from my ladder onto a branch and reach. So that was my working life as a bee till my eyesight blurred. My hand was a trembling bird in the leaves the bones of my fingers thinner than ones. And when they retired me, I had my wine from the silent vines, and I'd known love, and I'd saved some money, but I could not fly, and I made no honey. I'll finish with um, another poem about the death of my mother which I was um, writing about earlier in the poem Cold and um, when I'm sure many people here will have endured bereavement when my mother died the effect on me was a kind of deafening um, particularly as a poet I seem to um, slightly lose contact with my um, physical senses, particularly the music of of language or or poetry. And after perhaps three years, um, this poem came to me almost as a gift or a a way of seeing. I was very grateful for it. And um, I imagined in the poem that the very first time I ever met my mother was at the moment of her death, When I was with her And the poem works as a kind of resurrection We get to know each other To live our relationship Backwards through time In the few words Of of the poem Premonitions We first met When your last breath cooled in my palm Like an egg You dead And a thrush outside Sang it was morning I backed out of the room Feeling the flowers Freshen and shine In my arms The night before We met again To unsay Unbearable farewells To see our eyes Brighten with re-strung tears Oh, I had my sudden wish, though I barely knew you, to stand at the door of your house, feeling my heartbeat calm as they carried you in, home, home and healing. Then, slow weeks, removing the wheelchair, the drugs, the oxygen mask and tank, the commode, the appointment cards, until it was summer again and I saw you open the doors to the grace of your garden. Strange and beautiful to see the flowers close to their own premonitions, the grass sweeten and cool and green, where bees swooned backwards out of a rose. There you were, a glass of lemony wine in each hand, walking towards me always, your magnolia tree marrying itself to the May air. How you talked, and how I listened spellbound, humbled, daughterly to your tall tales, your wise words. The joy of your accent, un-English, dancy, humorous Watching your ash hair flare and redden The loving litany of who we had been Making me place my hand in your warm hand Younger than mine are now Then time, only the moon And the balm of dusk And you, my mother, thank you very much.
1: Thank you. Philip Levine has received and earned every honor you can think of in American poetry. When he was appointed the 18th United States Poet Laureate, the librarian of Congress, James H. Billington, said, Philip Levine is one of America's great narrative poets. His plain-spoken lyricism has for a half a century championed the art of telling the simple truth. I could quote praise like that all night. It would be futile. Because one of the joys of Philip Levine's poetry is how it overcomes everything and makes everything seem both hard and easy, fresh and inevitable, words that seem to come from our own minds, but no, they come from the poet's. What that tells us is that, as David Baker said, he's one of our most resonant voices of social conviction and witness. Although he's been doing it a long time, he reminds us over and over again of the hardship and the joys of the working life Of what we have to go through, of the roads we have to walk down. Looking out at all the people sitting here when I was walking through to come up to the front today, I think the highest praise of all was the number of people who came up to me and said how much Philip Levine's poems mean to them. Young people older people, people from every conceivable background in this country feel that they are spoken to by Philip Levine, that he's given them a voice. The beginning of a poem of his called Gospel goes like this. The new grass rising in the hills, the cows loitering, in the morning chill, a dozen or more old browns hidden in the shadows of the cottonwoods beside the stream bed. I go higher to where the road gives up, and there's only a faint path strewn with lupine between the mountain oaks. I don't ask myself what I'm looking for. I didn't come for answers to a place like this. I came to walk on the earth, still cold still silent. We are most fortunate that our poets, of course, are never silent. Please welcome Philip Levine, United
0: States Poet laureate. You know, it's, it's not easy following Carol Ann. She's A wonderful reader and a wonderful poet, and I'm glad that uh, being the Poet Laureate has brought us together. What else am I glad about? I'm glad about all of you coming here to listen to me and to listen to Carol Ann. And later I will tell you about an extraordinary poetry contest. Carolyn and I have devised. It's called the $10 million, or in her case, the 10 million pound poetry contest. And we too will judge it. And the award will be presented by the Queen of England <laughs> and the President of the United States, if he's a Democrat. $10 million, which Carol and I will endow. I'm not kidding. The prize will award the winning poet $10 a year for a million years. <clears throat> or, you know, 36,000 miles, if that comes first. <laughs> I would like to read older poems, but I didn't bring them. And in a, in a way, it's, it's, it's good for me and not for you. Because reading my older poems is a bit depressing. They're so much better than my newer poems. And, and I can break down and weep. Uh, which, of course, is something poets do quite regularly. (laughs) (laughs) Ah, yes. Gospel. I live half the year in the San Joaquin Valley in Fresno and half the year in Brooklyn, and uh, this poem comes out of Fresno. Gospel. The new grass rising in the hills the cows loitering in the morning chill, a dozen or more old browns hidden in the shadows of the cottonwoods beside the stream bed. I go higher to where the road gives up and there's only a faint path strewn with lupine between the mountain oaks. I don't ask myself what I'm looking for. I didn't come for answers to a place like this. I came to walk on the earth, still cold, still silent. Still ungiving, I said to myself, although it greets me with last year's dead thistles and this year's hard spines, early blooming wild onions, the curling remains of spider's cloth. What did I bring to the dance? in my back pocket a crushed letter from a woman I've never met, bearing bad news I can do nothing about. So I wander these woods half sightless, while a west wind picks up in the trees clustered above. The pines make a music like no other, rising and falling like a distant surf at night that calms the darkness before first light. Suffing, we call it, from old English, no less. How weightless words are when nothing will do. And as I read that, I thought that there were a few lines that had a relevance to my present situation. They are as follows. This only occurred to me as I was reading it. I don't ask myself what I came looking for. The AWP is what I'm talking about. I didn't come for answers to a place like this. So so take my advice. (laughs) It's amazing how relevant poems are. I had the good fortune to go to college at a time when America had a left wing, Uh, which was every bit as idiotic as its right wing, though not as idiotic as our present right wing. it was a wonderful time to go to school because there were, you know, we had the people who would go out and found uh, the John Birch Society, and we had, you know, communists, real communists with cards <laughs> and, and, you know, and, and with incredible spiels of horseshit that, you know, you could hardly believe. And such, well, I'll read the poem. Uh, I, give them, I give them pseudonyms. Uh, I call the guy, there are two guys, I call one Vallejo because of the way he speaks, and I call her Ida Lupino because of the way she looked. And because Ida Lupino was, you know, the sort of woman in the films that city boys adored. And never got near. And uh, she was an amazing woman, actually. Our Reds. Let us bless the three wild Reds of our school days. Bless how easily Gaunt Vallejo would lose control, the blood rushing to his depleted face while his mistress in a torn trench coat stoked his padded shoulders to calm him. We'll call him Vallejo, after the poet, only because he vaulted into speech in such a headlong rush. In truth, his name was Slovakian. We'll call her Lapino after the film star, because she was more beautiful in memory than in fact her cheeks drawn over fine bones, her hair tumbling down from under the beret, hair we loved and called dirty blonde. Vallejo would rise in class unasked to interrupt the tired fascist swill the stunned professor was giving out. Quote, the proper function of a teacher is to inform the unformed cadres of the exploited classes regarding the nature of their enslavement to an estate sold to the masters of the means of production. Lapino would rise quietly beside him to show solidarity and to begin her therapy. Two ton Cohen would join in, flashing his party cards for all to see and invoking the sacred triads of Hegel. And we, the unformed and the uninformed, dropped our pencils and groaned with gladness to be quit of Aristotle's ethics or the monetary policies of James K. Polk and stared into a future of rotund potential fulfilled. They're gone now, the three, Vallejo, Lupino, Cohen, into an America no one wanted, or something even worse. So bless their certainties, their fiery voices we so easily resisted. Their tired eyes, their cheeks flushed with sudden blood. Bless their rhetoric. Bless their zeal. Bless their costumes and their cards. Bless their faith in us, especially that faith, that hideous innocence. You know, you can eat very well in this city if somebody else is paying for it. Uh, If they invite you here, do come. If they're paying for it. (laughs) Uh, This is called The Two. There are a few references that might be obscure. Well, many of you are are from Iowa and you remember Muscatine. Uh, some of you are fiction writers and no doubt remember F. Scott Fitzgerald (laughs) Sweden is a country in Europe (laughs) Uh, the Packard the Packard was a car that we made we Yeah, I'm from Detroit, we (laughs) The, the imperial we we made in Detroit it was a good car, it was a sort of pseudo Rolls Royce it had a grill very much like a Rolls Royce and it cost something a mortal could afford but it's gone like so much the two when he gets off work at Packard they meet outside a diner on Grand Boulevard he's tired a bit depressed And smelling the exhaustion on his own breath, he kisses her carefully on her left cheek. Early April, and the weather has not decided if this is spring, winter, or what. The two gaze upward at the sky, which gives nothing away. The low clouds break here and there and let in tiny slices of a pure blue heaven. The day is like us, she thinks. It hasn't decided what to become. The traffic light at Linwood goes from red to green and the truck start up. so that when he says, would you like to eat, she hears a jumble of words that means nothing, though spiced with things she cannot believe, wooden, Jew and lucky meat, He's been up late, she thinks. He's tired of the job, perhaps tired of their morning meetings. But then he bows from the waist and holds the door open for her to enter the diner, and the thick odor of bacon frying and new potatoes greets them both. And taking heart, she enters to peer through the thick cloud of tobacco smoke to see if their booth is available. F. Scott Fitzgerald wrote that there were no second acts in America, but he knew neither this man nor this woman, and no one else liked them, unless he stayed up late at the office to test his famous one-liner, we keep you clean in Muscatine, on the woman emptying his wastebasket. Fitzgerald never wrote with someone present, except for this woman in a gray uniform whose comings and goings went unnoticed. Even on those December evenings, she worked late, while the snow fell silently on the window sills, and the new fluorescent lights blinked on and off. Get back to the two, you say. Not who ordered poached eggs, who ordered only toast and coffee, who shared the bacon with the other, but what became of the two when this poem ended. Whose arms held whom? Who first said, I love you, and truly meant it? And who misunderstood the words so longed for, and yet still so unexpected, and began suddenly to scream and curse until the waitress asked them both to leave. The Packard plant closed years before I left Detroit. The diner was burned to the ground in 67, two years before my oldest son fled to Sweden to escape the American dream. And the lovers, you ask? I wrote nothing about lovers. Take a look. Clouds, trucks, traffic lights, a diner, work, a wooden shoe, East Moline, poached eggs, the perfume of frying bacon, the chaos of language, the spices of spent breath after eight hours of night work. Can you hear all I feared and never dared to write? Why the two are more real than either you or me? Why I never returned to keep them in my life? How little I now mean to myself or anyone else. What any of this could mean. Where you found the patience to endure these truths and confusions. Did you ever hear of anything called the prose poem? I'd been writing them for years, and I thought they were prose. Little did I know there were prose poems and that there was really a new career (laughs) for a man whose talent had faded before he even found a pen. (laughs) I'd like to read you one. I must hurry so that we can have a Q and A So that we can sit side by side, two poet laureates in one room, putting lovely young people to sleep (laughs) before their bedtime. This is called the language problem. Cuban Spanish is incomprehensible, even to Cubans. Quote If you spit in his face, he'll tell you it's raining the cab driver said in Cuban it means your cigar is from Tampa (laughs) single desperate almost 40 my ex-wife told the Cuban doctor she'd give a million dollars for a perfect pair of breasts God hates a coward he said and directed her to an orthopedic shoe store (laughs) where everything smelled like iodine A full page ad on the back of Nueva Prensa Cubana clearly read, quote, free rum 24 hours a day and more on weekends. (laughs) Free rum was in italics. When I showed up that evening at the right address, Calle Obispo 28, the little merchant I spoke to said, Rum? This is not a distillery. They were flogging Venetian blue umbrellas for $4 American. Mine was made in Taiwan, and when it rained, refused to open. Before sunset, the streets filled with music. In the great plaza of the revolution, the dark came slowly, filled with the perfume of automobile exhaust and wisteria. I danced with a girl from Santiago de Cuba. Gabriela Mistral Garcia was her name. She was taller than I and wore her black hair in a wiry tangle. She was a year from her doctorate in critical theory. After our dance, she grabbed me powerfully by the shoulders as a comandante in a movie might, leaned down as though to kiss me on the cheek, and whispered in my good ear, I dream of Tenure. It was the fifties all over again. Yeah. I almost never write love poems, and if you wonder why, you could just ask my wife. But uh, well, she won't tell you. This is called Of Love and Other Disasters. This is my last poem. Not my last poem forever. Uh, Just my last poem for the evening. Unless, of course, you all demand seven or eight more. (laughs) My voice is going. My voice and my sobriety. Yes. So this this is it. And then we're going to converse in English. Uh, Of Love and Other Disasters, a Detroit poem. The punch press operator from up north met the assembler from West Virginia in a bar near the stadium. Friday, late, but too early to go home. Neither had anything in mind, so they conversed about the upcoming baseball season about which neither cared. We could be a couple, he thought. But she was all wrong, way too skinny. For years, he'd had an image of the way a woman should look, and it wasn't her. It wasn't anyone he'd ever known, certainly not his ex-wife who'd moved back north to live with her high school sweetheart, about killed him. I don't need that shit, he almost said aloud. And then realized she'd been talking to someone, maybe to him, about how she couldn't get her hands right, how the grease ate so deeply into her skin it became a part of her and she put her hand palm up on the bar and pointed with her cigarette at the deep lines that work had carved. The lifeline, he said? Which one is that? None, she said. And he noticed that her eyes were hazel, flecked with tiny spots of gold, and then embarrassed looked back at her hand which seemed tiny and delicate The fingers yellowed with calluses, but slender and fine. She took a paper napkin off the bar, spit on it, and told him to hold still while she carefully lifted his glasses, leaving him half blind and wiped something off just above his left cheekbone. There, she said, handing him back his glasses. I got it. And even with his glasses on, what she showed him was nothing he could see, maybe only make-believe. He thought, better get out of here before it's too late, but suspected too late was what he wanted. Thank you.
1: Just a couple questions. You know, when when Howard Nimrov was the consultant in poetry in 1963, that's what they kind of used to call the poet laureate job in the U.S. Um, They say he was only half-joking when he wrote that the poet laureate is a busy person. He's what? He's a a very busy person because he spends so much time talking with people who want to know what he does. So, my first question is, what is a
0: Poet Laureate? What does he do, or she do? What do you all do? As little as possible. (laughs) Absolutely. Take the money and run. The problem is that at my age, I run very slowly. (laughs) No, I mean... You do what you want to do, you get a lot of, you know, you get a lot of offers and some of them are appealing and some of them are a disaster. Uh, and some of them have been quite wonderful. I've met some, well, I wouldn't have met her and her friend Mia, if I hadn't been the poet laureate. Yeah. And so that, that and, and I remember going to a school in Harlem. I was invited to a writing class, a club, a writing club serious club, and when I showed up, they were sixth graders, 11 years old, and they'd all decided they wanted to be writers. And they, they were just marvelous. They were smart, their teachers were fabulous. It was a, an amazing afternoon for me, really revived me. And then reading for the AFL-CIO was great. And they didn't ask for the dues that I hadn't paid years ago. <laughs> They let me off the hook. No, I mean, there's, there are some wonderful opportunities. And a guy called me the other day, and he wanted to send me some poems. And he wanted to get published. He'd been writing a long time, and he thought America owed him a book. And when I read it, I thought America owed him a good kick in the ass. I mean, this stuff was so deplorable. I don't know how to tell you. I don't know how to answer because he was obviously in pain or else he was crying for some other reason. But oh Jesus, what do you do, you know? How about you, Caroline? What have you done? <laughs> Did do they call you up and ask?
2: Well, it's kind of different. Um, the British poet it like, doesn't get paid, so it isn't quite um. <laughs>
1: well you told me you get a little something
2: Yeah, it's, it's more vocational um, th- There's a kind of myth that the British Poet Laureate receives alcohol from the Queen <laughs> So it might be interesting to, to tell you about that um, the, the very first Poet Laureate, there's a bit of debate It's either Ben Johnson or Dryden But they were essentially employed as spin doctors for the crown (laughs) to write poems saying how great the king was. And Francis Drake, who was a pirate, basically, had recently been to uh, Spain, to Jerez, and he burnt the place down and stolen sherry, which the English had never had. And when he brought it back, to England they went crazy for this they were only used to kind of weak English beer and suddenly there was this wonderful wine and uh, the, the, the first poet laureates were paid not in gold or money as you still are in America um, but <laughs> with sherry um, and they loved this and then a, a real creep of a poet laureate called Collie Subba didn't drink Um, and he went to the king and said I don't drink I want money so since about 1700 there was never any um, sherry given to the poet for for hundreds of years until Ted Hughes was was made poet laureate and the the Spanish realized you know the English press was saying a butt of sack for Ted Hughes and the Spanish said no no so it's now given directly to the poet laureate from the sherry makers of Jerez. Um, so they're have, still paying for it, aren't they? Yeah, I have 700 bottles of sherry in my garage. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'll be selling them at $100 a bottle at the back.
0: Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, do you sign them?
2: Yeah,
0: sign <laughs>
1: them. Well, Phil, I think you should put in a plug for your wine. Oh, yeah. Yes, there's a. Philip Levine Vintage.
0: Yeah, there, uh, there will be a wine uh, called Picaresque. Uh, that's the title I, I gave it, and you said, I made you just the blend. You what?
2: You copied us.
0: Yes, yes, I copied you, and uh, and it will be on the market. Uh, and if you're interested, uh, you know Fresno State, where I used to teach has one of the two wine programs in in America the others at Davis but Davis doesn't make wine only we make wine Uh, because we drink so much so that we have to make it and we give it to the cows there are a lot of cows there and you get a different kind of milk it's uh, makes breakfast a whole different experience so they are producing this, this wine and, and my wife, Franny, and I and my dear friend, Peter Evermann, we went to the Vintner and tasted all of the wines and, and we I made the choices. Finally. I stand by that wine. And if you don't like it, screw you. But if you do like <laughs> it, <laughs> ask for more. <laughs> It'll be on the market this fall. There'll be an ad in... Uh, in New York and poetry yes. <laughs> like now of course in poetry oh, yes. yeah I,
1: I should mention that um most people I guess think that the U.S. Poet Laureate uh is paid out of taxpayer money and it's not true that's right it is paid for out of an endowment from the Library of Congress so this is free for if you're an American citizen we, we get you for free Phil um There are clearly differences in the roles that you play, though your work is marvelous and it's good to hear you together. One other misconception I suppose Americans have is that the UK Poet Laureate is obliged to write ceremonial poems. We were talking about this a little earlier. They're really not. um, But the poems do arise to the occasions in the world uh, around you. And so this week uh, a very poignant poem uh, relating to one of the sites on which the Olympics will take place in the UK was in, in all of the media over there, and now it is over here too. So I wonder, Caroline, if you can talk about that particular kind of poetry, which I think uh, American audiences don't understand.
2: Yes, um, historically, the as I said earlier, the, the original British laureates were. Paid as spin doctors to reflect the concerns and the interests of the the crown and the establishment, I suppose, but for many years many decades that hasn 't been the case. I mean, I suppose the first radical poem written by a poet laureate was tennyson 's charge of the Light Brigade, which is a in its time, a very shocking critique of the Crimean War um, and the the, um, the foolhardy decisions by generals, which resulted in the death of, of British soldiers. Um, I suppose the pressure on laureates in the 20th century has really come from the the British tabloid press, whereas the royal wedding poem. Um, where's the you know the the, the poem about silly kind of national events and um, that's kind of vanished really um, uh, over the years so there is no in my experience three years into the laureateship our term is ten years which is um, a bit longer Um, than in other countries so uh, how I interpret it is to stay true to the vocation of of being a poet and I think as Philip showed in his reading poets do reflect the pulse of their country um, in a truthful way without being asked to write Um, sometimes I'll be asked to write a poem, which she might see as a commission. Um, and if if my um, honest response as a poet kind of crosses the um, the subject, and I can write, there's a kind of energy in in my talent and the the commission that, that might provide a spark. And if not, then I, I will say no. So it's trying to be the poet you are, um, but being sensitive to the country's heartbeat as well as your own, really.
0: Which is just what you were doing before you became a poet. Yeah, and what you do. Yeah. And what, what we yeah.
2: all do. I think to write to order or to become some kind of puppet would be wrong and you would, you would not have a relationship with your readers anyway.
1: Both of you are such terrific poets that your work, indeed, <laughs> that your work, I would say, is this is a terrible word, I guess, but it's accessible to all of us here. It doesn't. I don't feel any kind of real cultural divide as a just sorry as a reader, a person who loves I'm poetry. I'm
0: deeply sorry to hear that. Yeah. <laughs> I wanted you to be deeply offended by that. Well, I didn't say I wasn't offended. I, by its obscurity. I, I'm
1: just saying it was intelligible. But, but the real question Explain I want... Explain it to me. <laughs> uh, I'll do that over some sherry. Okay. Um, but the question I'm trying to lead up to yes. is this. Um, me. You know, I, I think people who read a lot of uh, contemporary poetry from the UK and from the US are struck by a sense... That they're not quite the same languages. Indeed, they're not. Um, and yet, the, our two cultures have talked to each other for ages. Um, what kind, it, you know, what kind of language are you speaking in? Are you speak, You're writing in American, and, but other people read your work. And here, Carolyn Duffy has read to us. We understand. We understand. We get so much out of it. But are these languages, when it comes to poetry, in some fundamental way different? Are they still related? Have they diverged? Will they converge? Should they? Should they not?
2: I mean, if you look at um, British poetry since the early twentieth century, I mean, two of the major poets are T. S. Eliot. Sylvia Plath, both Americans. Um, Faber, which is, I suppose, the kind of Vatican of of English poetry, is still very much um, inhabited by the presence of T. S. Eliot, um, his his second wife, his his widow, um, half owns Faber. Um, Ted Hughes, Sylvia Plath, the huge influences, um, and then we have. I suppose many um, poets and academics um, currently interested in Elizabeth Bishop. So I I think American poets, um, Robert Frost again, another poet, Hart Crane, that American poets are very alive in in the lives of, of English poets. Yeah,
1: you do have resurgent poetry from Scotland, Wales. You know, poets from the north do not speak southern in your country. Here, we hear the accents of Brooklyn, Fresno, Detroit in Philip Levine's work. So our regional languages are—you know—there's not one language that poetry exists in. But
0: well, when I came into poetry, you know, as a young guy reading poetry, some of my influences. A major influence, of course, was uh, was. uh, W.H. Auden. I'm thinking of the English poets I was reading, devoted to. Dylan uh,
2: Thomas, I suppose.
0: Yeah. Edward Thomas. Dylan Thomas. Right. And Yeah, Edward Thomas and Dylan Thomas. Uh, Edward Thomas. Yeah. yeah, and Edward, Thomas. Stayed, Edward stayed with me longer than Dylan Thomas, I think. <laughs> Dylan Thomas came to the United States and read here. And, you know, I heard him several times and you know he was a carnival, he was an incredible show because American poets really didn't seem to know how to read uh, very effectively or dramatically or interestingly until he appeared and, and, and he had this marvelous voice and he, he had a patter of bullshit that was just amazing. You, you,
2: heard, you heard him live. You, oh yes, yes. Wonderful.
0: Yes, some years ago they were celebrating some anniversary of his death or birth or something and I got a call from the Welsh, uh, I don't know, a tourist thing or something. And they said, did you ever meet Dylan Thomas? And I said, yes. They've been looking all over to find somebody. And yes, it was his death they were celebrating. I don't know why they want to celebrate his death, but they were. And yes, I, I, I heard him here in New York. I heard him in Ann Arbor, Michigan. I heard him in Detroit. I heard him twice here. And I met him once. Uh, you know it was a pain in the ass yeah i 'm going to meet you you know and uh, and it was you know and then then two Welsh poets came, and they didn 't want to talk about Dylan Thomas. they were sick of you know we have our own poetry that 's all anybody ever asks us, goddamn Dylan Thomas
2: <laughs> you know.
0: Can you imagine let's say we're starting to write poetry tomorrow in Detroit, and somebody says, "Oh, do you know Levine's No, I don't know Levine's work. <laughs> it's atrocious, you know you know they didn't want to talk, and I didn't blame him. I shut up finally, and but we we did read his work to a, to a group, and it was fun. yes, he was in I'd never heard anyone read poetry the way he did and and, and use the patter that he used and if you heard somebody like william carlos williams you you thought. I want to go out quietly from this auditorium and not wake him, you know? Uh, well, you know he was a great poet, but he had no idea how to read.
1: Uh, well, that, that leads me to another, that's a good segue, it's what we interviewers say. So what poet, living or dead, are you devoted to that nobody would figure out from reading your work?
0: Me, anybody. Chaucer. Chaucer, my favorite English poet.
2: Shakespeare. (laughs) Uh, I'm a narrative poet.
0: (laughs) uh, (laughs) You're a dramatic poet. Yes.
2: Shakespeare for the range of voice and the comedy and the. uh, For everything. The narrative and the um, the sex really.
1: Well, now let me ask a related question. Can you tell me the name of a poet or a poem that's crap,
0: but you love it anyway? I could name a lot of my own Uh, poems.
2: I was going to say the same thing.
0: (laughs) My poems? She was going to say my (laughs) poems. But you know my poems better than I know yours. I don't know your crappy poem. Uh, <laughs> uh, a crappy poem that I love. There must. Uh, I, no, no. I'm very discerning. Oh, uh, I have been to to use your wonderful phrase. I've too often been accosted by academics to reveal that. (laughs) That was your phrase. I was accosted by an academic. I have to remember that.
2: (laughs) There's an English poem which I hate, which is right in the English psyche, not the Welsh or the Scots, which is If by Rudyard Kipling. Oh, oh my
0: God. You you know that our former governor has
1: frequently recited If. on the verge well, of is, imprisonment. There,
0: there is an. I, I, I just remembered a poem. It, it's one of Hart Crane's voyages, and it has the line, "Permit me voyage, my love, unto your arms." And when I I remember, I used to. My wife and I were in Europe. Uh, we lived a couple years there, and, and I we, we had three kids with us, and they would be fighting and killing each other, and 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 in this VW we had it was a, a longer one than usual. And I would sing that poem to them, and I can't sing very well at all. And they would be—they would beg me to stop. <laughs> they would absolutely beg me, "Please don't do that. I said, if you will stop punching each other, I will not sing." And it was—it was a charm. It was the magic of poetry. <laughs> uh, it was—it was amazing. So I, I love that crappy line. Uh, just
2: mine was um, <laughs> the Kipling if you can keep your head when all about you are losing theirs, you are possibly not aware of the situation.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Um, You you two have worked very hard this evening, so I'll uh, (laughs) I'll just ask one question. It's the kind of question one is obliged to ask. Uh, I'm not an academic, so I'm accosting no one. But there are students here. There are young poets, See sea of them. And I must ask you, what, what can you tell them? What at all can you tell them?
0: Well, I mean about how to, I, I it, how to do say, it. I can seriously say that you know somewhere in my teens I started writing poetry and somewhere in my 20s I decided I was going to keep writing poetry and there have been times when I regretted it but by and large I'm I'm very happy that I stuck with it and uh, it hadn't been that easy and I wrote a lot of terrible poems and I waited a long time uh, for what I got but I got a lot but mostly The pleasure was in doing it just doing it and and feeling useful and feeling i could use my experience in ways that i hadn't dreamed of and and i i I i'm very glad i did what i did and i think if they feel that call that urgency they should follow it it's 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 an adventure worth taking
2: I suppose I would agree with that. I think I don't know about fiction. I speak only for poetry. It is a vocation. It's for me the the music of being human. It's not something I would recommend undertaking unless you feel vocational and if if you want to make any money I would certainly not do it. But um Yes, it's been my life, and it's been like an invisible companion, really, both the reading and the writing of poetry. And I wouldn't be myself without having had that.
1: Thank you so much. I think that's a lovely place to end. <clears throat> Philip with E. thank you so much.
0: Thank you for tuning in to the AWP podcast series. For other podcasts, please tune into our website at www.awpwriter.org.